You now tuned into the hottest podcast in the world, the Stay Woke Podcast, right here on the SonicBreakdown.com. Man, it's time to wake up. Time to wake up. Get this cake up. Get this cake up. Only thing I care about is switching. Welcome back to another Stay Woke Podcast. This is D Ray Brinson, and you know the Stay Woke Podcast is presented by the SonicBreakdown.com. So please uh, go check out the reviews and articles that we have on the SonicBreakdown.com. Today's topic or this episode is titled "Not Black Emoji." These are going to be a compilation of conversations that we have that are going to be based on the video from the footnotes of Jay-Z. And in this particular episode, it's going to be based off the specific footnotes of the story of OJ. One of the things that video sparked for me was the idea of can black people or people of color rise above um, racism and the oppressions that are associated with racism. And um, when I was watching the video, there was a section where Kendrick Lamar talks about when he first realized like he was black, that he was a black person. And it was an incident that occurred with his mom and a police officer being very disrespectful to to him or to his mother. And he picked up on it even at the young age of five. The question I want to pose to to the audience here and actually let me introduce the audience here that we have as well. Um, we have Reddy uh, Constant uh, on the podcast. We also have Brother to the Left, who's also been on several of the podcasts. And we also have Junior, who was on the, I think it was two episodes ago, with um, college athletes getting paid. And then we have a newcomer, which is uh, Spence. We got together because of uh, another uh, member of the podcast, Pendarvis Harshaw. And so uh, I'm going to get their opinions on all this. So again, I want to pose that same question to you guys. And when did you first identify yourself as, as black? Or do you even identify yourself as black? brother to the left my perspective on when i identified myself as black is going to resonate with some most definitely not with all but my you know my experience with that uh, wasn't a quintessential moment there wasn't one time or one moment where i considered or identified myself as black rather a um you know just a bunch of experiences you know growing up where i realized hey I'm being treated just a little different than everybody else. Um, and, you know, just let me give my background really quick. And, you know, as you know, as we talk about how and when I identified myself as black um, early on, you know, I don't know if you know much about the Bay Area for those uh, viewers out there. But I started off in Fremont, kindergarten in Fremont. Boom. You know, you're surrounded by white people, you know, talking about third, fourth grade, San Lorenzo, San Leandro, San Lorenzo. You know, those two cities are real interchangeable. You know what I'm saying? I went to Edendale, San Lorenzo. Then you talk about uh, seventh, eighth grade, boom, East Oakland. It's on and cranking. You know what I'm saying? East Oakland. All black, all hyphy at the time, all, you know, with it. So, you know, as you talk about my progression through each one of those cities from seventh, you know, and eighth grade on, you know what I'm saying? Really from kindergarten on, you know, you're talking about a, a bunch of different experiences. But, even, but, you know, especially early on in kindergarten in Fremont, I recognized that I was being treated a little different. Even in kindergarten, as far back as your consciousness goes, because most of us can't remember school, can't remember adolescence or your childhood, you know, be, you know, under fourth grade, or I'm sorry, under four years old. You mostly remember kindergarten on, you know, as a teacher, you know, that's just what development says. You remember kindergarten on. Some of us remember preschool, but for the most part, you remember kindergarten on. And so here's the thing. I wanted to give the context here for what I'm about to say, right? Because for me, and I feel like for most, there wasn't a pivotal moment of when I realized I was a black man. 
more like a, you know what I'm saying, a consortium of, you know what I'm saying, of, of moments in which I realized I was being treated differently. Standards were set differently for me than for others. When, when it came to, you know, what you could achieve academically or what you're expected to do socially, things were a little different for me than others. And uh, brother to the left, I have to completely agree with you. This is your boy, Reddy. For me, it wasn't one, one moment. I grew up in a neighborhood that was predominantly white and Latino. And me and my brothers were the only, not, not jokingly, not kind of, the only black kids in the whole entire school. So the re- when I started getting that understanding that I was black, it wasn't like Monday I realized I was black. It was me slowly seeing that I didn't look like the rest of the people around me, as well as they they would give you these like kind of clues that you were different, that you were the one that was uh, that on the outskirts of who we are. So for me, it was like, Growing up in second, third, fourth, fifth grade, where everyone's like, "Yo, you're darker than the rest of us," and I'm, and as you know, I'm, I'm a mixed kid. Just to let y'all know out there, I'm, I'm not that dark, but I was still darker than everybody around me. So I was already like, "Yo, you must be something that we're not." So even before the kids knew, you know, they were Mexican or they were white or had that concept, they knew that I didn't look like them and I didn't behave like them. And my mom, my brothers, we all looked and acted at least a little bit different. So for me, it was a compilation of years of experience when you really get that I don't I can't say an aha moment because it's kind of like you always knew you were different and then you kind of I, I know I'm black but I don't really get what that means until the point where you like yo I truly get the concept of you know being black still in high school how y'all doing Spence uh I'd say for me it wasn't kind of similar to brother to the left it wasn't necessarily one pivotal moment but I was fortunate enough to have parents uh particularly my mother who were very big on understanding black identity and promoting that and celebrating that. So an example of that was when I was in elementary school, she made it a point that we would celebrate Kwanzaa or understand the meanings of Kwanzaa. That was one thing we would just do in our house. It wasn't, you know, kind of a big thing outside of my school or anything like that. And the neighborhood that I grew up in, I'm from the East Coast. Uh, it was very, it was multicultural. The neighborhood that I was in specifically or on my street, it was mostly black, but there was also particularly in my neighborhood, Puerto Rican. We had plenty of people all over South America, Asia. Every like It was very much multicultural. So I grew up kind of seeing everyone or having experiences with kind of different cultures from everywhere. So I was used to seeing different faces. It wasn't weird to do that or anything. Even when I got to a school that was, say, more predominantly white or vice versa, it didn't phase me as much until I started having experiences where it was a negative impact. I think for most black men, when we talk about uh, black identity and when did you realize you're black, it's usually when something negative happens to you. Someone calls you a nigger or some, something, something that would tell you that you're other, you're not accepted. So I didn't necessarily have that experience until I got to middle school, but I was already aware of my black identity maybe in, I'd say, in elementary school, just based off the fact that, you know, my parents are very big, particularly my mother, very big on kind of promoting that and understanding that and championing that, putting me around other people that could teach that in terms of understanding, like, Martin Luther King Day, why he was so important for civil rights, having parents that went through that, and to give context to that and understand why it's important, that really kind of uh, began to shape my life in terms of, okay, you know, I understand that, you know, we all have differences, how do I fit into this? What's what what puzzle piece am I? How do I fit into this this larger frame of life? So kind of going through that, everyone kind of has, or at least with me, I felt like there was a wake up call at some point where it's like, okay, you know, there's advantages to this, and 
in a larger context, disadvantages, particularly how you deal with other people or how they see you. And um, if you grow up in a predominantly, say, black neighborhood, you won't necessarily have that until you go into another experience where someone's treating you different. And when you have that, it's very it's very telling depending on your uh, how you were raised, how you're going to react to that, that different stigma or that, you know, having a different stimulus, basically. Hmm. So understanding that and kind of going through it, it begins to shape how you see other people. So if you have a negative experience very early on, you can have a, you know, a bad perception of say white people or whoever, whoever else is around you that would put something bad into your head. So I think that shapes a lot of uh, how we, how we view our identity, at least growing up. And it changes as we get older with more experiences. What about you, Junior? This is Junior. Me personally, um, I can't remember two moments. Um, the first one, the first one being, um, I must have been fourth grade, and I too was in Fremont uh, for a lot of my adolescence. And I uh, waved to a police officer. I was with my dad in the car or something, and my dad was like, "We don't, we don't wave to police officers. We don't, we don't say what's up to police officers." And as a, a four or five year old, all you get from that is we we have to behave differently for some reason. Um, and I don't know how long it took me to exactly understand why I had to behave differently. I'm around police officers. Um, but from that age on, I knew that we had to behave differently um, in certain situations. And then the second moment, and this kind of plays into my background as an athlete and kind of how I like to frame things in athletics, that's kind of where I come from, is I must have been in the fourth grade and I was playing Little League Baseball and I was easily the best player on the team. And we were losing some game and the coach wouldn't let me pitch. <clears throat> Excuse me, coach wouldn't let me pitch. And they was hitting balls out the ballpark, doubles, singles, walks. And he was letting all these other kids that didn't look like me come up and pitch. And I remember being in the outfield, pissed off. And then I finally realized this is because of the way I look. And we're about to lose this game. And as an athlete, I was first just mad we're about to lose. Um, and I think then I realized it's because of the way I look. And I don't think it's any coincidence that about a year later, I was done with baseball. And I kind of stuck to the basketball thing. I mean, I think those two moments, especially the second one, because it had to do with sports, which was, you know, kind of my safe haven. And that plays into what we what you saw in the footnotes about athletes kind of getting that pass. Um, I think that was so potent in my memory because um, that was so contrary to what I had experienced so far. And, you know, so so all of us have shared something, you know, about our own personal experience. But, you know, I think I want to share something that that, you know, I could be wrong, but I, I, I truly feel that this is something that is the experience of every black man in America. There comes a point when you leave childhood to where you start to look like a man, right? It happens different for every each one of us, right? Whether you're 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. But when you start to look like a man, when you start to look like a young adult, when you start to look like a black man, when things start to change for you, you start getting followed around in stores. Police look at you different. Women treat you different, for sure, right? Women treat you different. And you start, you know, there, there's a totally different reaction from, you know, from your society than when you look like a little boy. There's a certain threat from the majority of society. There's a certain love from a certain aspect of society, you know, particularly when we talk about women, right? That was very apparent to me. At about 12, 13, 14 years old, I realized that when I went out into the world, people were interacting with me different than when I was 7, 8, 9, 10 years old, as opposed to when I was 11, 12, 13, 14 years old, when I started to look like a young adult. I want to touch on that, again, uh, on that brother to the left, is for me, I guess my experience is different. I noticed similar to Kendrick around 5 
that I was a black man or a, a black person because, of course, I wasn't a man. One of it or some of it has to do with the fact that my grandmother was very big on educating us, similar to what Spence was talking about of African-American history. Those are those are the first actual books. I, like I, rem- I can remember my grandmother sitting me down and bringing out this big ass blue book with black letters on the front. And it was before the Mayflower. And so that kind of at that point solidified in my mind, I'm black and I'm this is like. There's a lot of bad things that happened to us. But then she would also point out the things like she'd be like, you know, your uncle, he was a Tuskegee Airman. And she would say all the great positive things about the Tuskegee Airman to give me that sense of, you know, positive identity of, yeah, we did go through some things, a lot of things, a lot of horrible things that it's 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 unfathomable to even to even think about, to be honest with you. But she also pointed out, like I said, the, the positive aspects of us as a people. So I understood that. So that was one experience. Also, around the same time, I had another experience in the negative, and that was uh, this girl was picking on my or, or this this yeah this girl was picking on my brother, and I stood up for him and you know didn't do anything but it was basically like yo leave him alone. So she got her brother, and me and him got in a fight. And what started the fight was his first words were, "If you fuck with my sister, nigga, I'm gonna kick your ass." Something to that extent. But nigga was in there, and I was like. I already knew what it meant because again of all the information that my grandmother was giving me, but I didn't under, I, I I didn't understand. You really don't understand it. Like brother to the left was saying of you get a better understanding. The same thing as Spence was saying, as the older you go grow and you understand those, those little things. But I already knew at that point that it was negative and that's not something that should be said to me. So. And a lot of it for me growing up, and we had a lot of beautiful, strong black women in my family specifically, uh, was you no know, picking up on the ways they defended us. Mm-hmm. Um, and something goes on at school or on your team or in a grocery store. And as a kid, you don't necessarily realize right away what's going on. But then you hear the way they're defending you. And then you that's when I really started to pick up on exactly why some of those situations were going down um, because of those, those moments of being defended by some of those strong black people in my life. Just to pick up on that, that was something both of you guys just said that resonated with me. One of the things my mother used to tell me all the time, particularly when we would go out any place, whether it was especially in stores, keep your hands out of your pockets. Keep your hands out of your pockets. You would just constantly just ring that into my head. Keep your hands out of your pockets. Keep your hands out of your pockets. And as a child, that's not something you necessarily think about all the time because, you know, you're walking around, you're, you know, you're doing things. It's not the first thing. You're in your own little world. You're, you're in your own little you world. You don't even realize that it had, that there, that's a thing. <laughs> You, as a child, you don't necessarily, you would not, at least I didn't understand the context for why she would say that as much as, you know, she would say, you know, keep your hands out of your pockets. You don't want people to think you're stealing. And I, to me, I, I know I'm not planning to steal anything. I don't know why someone else would think that. I have no intention of doing that. I'm just coming into the store with, you know, usually with my parents or whoever. That's, you know, that's not what I'm going to do. But having experiences of shopkeepers and other people follow you around the store and starting to get confused as a child. Why would, you know, why is he following? I don't understand this. You know, I'm just enjoying shopping, whatever. That was something that started to pick up as, as a child. I, I would realize that another way of being treated differently. And that comes across as a microaggression. It's not someone coming up to you and say, Hey, I don't want you in my store because you're black. It's, well, I'm going to question if you can afford whatever products you're bringing up to the front of the register. I'm going to question 
whether you have something extra in your bag that you may not be paying for in the register. And wondering to myself why you would even question that as opposed to the other customers that are that are in the store as well. I don't know what you know strikes you about me that would pull me out on having these experiences and having to have a parent or someone else teach it. Well, the reason why I do it because they see you differently. And right. then asking why, why are you seeing me differently? And, right. and real quick, I just want to say uh, to follow that is I'm glad that you brought that up because on previous podcast with the bear, and that's a conversation that I brought up because he's from um, uh, Indian culture where I asked him, I was like, are these the conversations that you're having when that you had as a child or that, you know, and he was like, no. And I was like, that's, these are the experiences that I've had and other people that I've known have these same experiences because of how we're viewed. And right. so go ahead, brother, to the left. I didn't mean to cut you off, but no, I no, no. add you, that in though. You essentially, you know, you, you touched on exactly what I wanted to say, which is that, you know, and, I, and I'll take it a step further or take it, a, take it back a little bit. When you talk about white privilege, right? When you talk about white privilege, you're talking about a set of experiences, negative experiences, that you don't have to experience but because we, of this color. Of your I know skin. where you're going. I don't want that's going to come up later. Okay. So so hold that thought. We definitely we are definitely going to go back to that um a, a little bit later. Uh, okay. But I do want to I wanted to kind of change the the tone a little bit and go to I want to bring up some examples of other people of color that haven't quite had that experience where they identify themselves as black or that they feel like uh, ashamed of it in essence. And some of the examples that I did want to bring up is um, O.J. Simpson, of course. The title of this podcast is I'm Not Black, I'm O.J. for a reason. So I wanted to just get your opinion on just that line. What does that what does that feeling, what does that that line evoke to you as all of us are here as black men? I'm not black, I'm O.J. That you that he's somehow transcended being black. That comes from his personal experience, right? Which is a real and valid experience. But it comes from experience of being young and being really athletically adept, right? From a, from a really early age. And because of that athletic ability, you're being treated differently your whole life. And so because of that, you're in a situation where those around you are are not treating you like the average black man. You know, they're not looking at you as the criminal or the hypersexual individual or the individual that is up to no good, which is the connotations that comes with being a black man. They're looking at you as the shit because you can catch a ball and run a ball. Right? So because of that, you are you're in a situation where you're missing all of those negative connotations. So when OJ says I'm not black, I'm OJ. That comes from a perspective of not experiencing the black man experience that most of us feel here in America. I think that's celebrity privilege to touch on that. That's something that is only afforded with success and is associated with success. You're able to get away with more things. You're able to have uh, new experiences. You're able to have more opportunities. You're able to go into new spaces because... You have that success. You are that celebrity. You have that athletic ability. And when you have that, people will champion around that. And in some cases, in most cases, they not necessarily will forget um, your ethnicity, but they will look, at, again, as Brother to the Left said, they'll kind of look past that as 
I've heard this this term before as like you're one of the good ones or you're you are separate from the rest of the people around you. And because of that, you are an exceptional person and you will be treated exceptionally until you stop being successful. You stop if it's athletic, you stop running as fast, you stop catching that ball, you stop scoring as much. And when you lose that value to them, as they see um, through your celebrity, then you lose a lot of those, you lose that privilege that has been afforded to you. And when that comes, you're basically back in the pile with everyone else. You're, you're another crab in the barrel, essentially. Um, yeah. And again, just bringing the athlete's perspective back into it. Yeah, exception, I think is a perfect word. And I think that's, that's a travesty in and of itself is that they need to be regarded as the exception, whether it's you're an athlete who does well in school or you're the exception that is, that is, that's, that is smart as well. Um, as if there isn't other smart, capable young men all around the world, as if there isn't other athletically gifted young men who just didn't have the same opportunities that this specific athlete um, was afforded that got him to that point. And you're totally right. Twitter does a perfect job of exemplifying what happens when um, you're not putting those points up or you're not as fast or not as strong. Twitter will turn on you in literally minutes um, and they'll talk about anything from from your mom to your to your kids um, with no remorse. Um, but then it can switch right back and you get that key back if you have a big game. And I can it's it's easy to kind of get um, disillusioned by that exception as the exception, if that makes sense. I'm um, get caught up in, in being an exception and believing you're an obsession, ex- exception. And I think OJ's comment to me more than anything was irresponsible and irresponsible in the sense that he should have said, I am OJ and I am black. Two more figures that I think kind of help uh, illustrate the points that, that you're, you both are making, as well as you two, two brother to the left, is uh, Tiger Woods and Sammy Sosa. And it kind of encompasses, I think, several different of the layers one of the layers that we just talked about with oj another one is or kind of similar is the same thing with tiger woods who is of mixed race a mixed heritage but wanted to separate himself from being black of being identified as black and if we go back to just uh i think it's Plessy versus ferguson basically that whole idea of the one drop rule that if you have one drop of black blood in you you're considered black in the eyes of the world and the government in in society But yet he still wanted to separate himself from that, as well as another Sammy Sosa who went even to this far extremes of 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 bleaching his skin to. And he even said on the interview that he did, he did it because he wanted the preferential treatment that he saw his counterparts that were either light skinned or white receiving on the same field as him. Because even in that he was, quote unquote, one of the exceptions, he was, you know, a household name, Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire at that time, the home run Kings. But he still felt, even with that, that he was still less because of the, the color of his skin. So I, w- I wanted to get your, your opinions on that. Go ahead. Absolutely. That's, that plays into the inferiority complex. And in many cases, I believe even in OJ's case, it's a defense mechanism. If you're an exception to the rule and you're receiving these privileges, you're receiving these opportunities, why would you want to go back from that? And if you can put yourself in a space where you can receive all these things then in many cases, you can shed what other people don't have the affordability to do. You can shed your blackness. And even when OJ saying that, I don't necessarily fault him for that because that's literally been his experience. That's been his experience his whole life. That's been experience he's lived with. If he's grown up being an exception, then anything else other than that is unacceptable. And if you see blackness as unacceptable, 
then you're going to shut that off. You're going to push that to the side. You're not going to associate with that and bring that along with you as you become more successful or not make that a cornerstone in how you move around the world. And if you see things particularly around that, like it's an inferiority complex or you you, uh, recognize that your blackness or your skin color is in some cases um, leaving you to have disadvantages and things like that, then they just see that in many, I feel like when you're successful in many cases, if there's a way to separate yourself from that or push away from that, whether it's bleaching your skin, uh, denouncing your blackness or, you know, kind of pushing that to the side or really playing on the idea that um, you're mixed and not black, then they're going to do that to continue with the lifestyle that they've been leading and being in the same world that they've been in. Anything uh, past that is going to be unacceptable for them. Tiger Woods' example is so interesting because he's in the world of golf, which is easily the whitest sport and is a wealth, not a rich man's sport, but a wealthy man's sport. And he was being championed as perhaps the greatest ever, obviously one of the most famous athletes to ever exist on the earth. And so I can only imagine, I'm speaking to Spence's point, to him, what kind of pressure that must have felt to to conform to what that world is supposed to be. And if, if you go look at golf, um, they're kind of the... Uh, poster child for getting institutional preferential treatment so that that world can continue to exist and continue to make money and continue to keep African-Americans and other minorities out of it. But here you have Tiger Woods being held up at the top of it. And then just to see for, for like you said, for him to make his mistakes and to see the way everybody abandoned him and to see how hard it's been for him to come back. I think that just goes to show um, how much pressure being in such a, like I said, a white sport and a wealthy sport as a black man who isn't, doesn't have that, has that inferiority complex. It just shows you the toll that could take on a man's brain. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, just just to piggyback on, uh, you know, what has been said so far, this, this takes me back to something I said about, man, six, seven months ago when we did the uh, the Kaepernick podcast, when he first when when he first started sitting down and kneeling, right? Um, and one thing I said was, it's about goddamn time, right, for professional athletes to start standing up and 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 voicing issues that are you know and, and things that are happening to the common man, right, or the common black man, anyways. And you know, I think what's, what's what we're what we're talking about, what we're speaking here to here now, is that there are professional athletes that are either oblivious or just simply missing the experiences of the average black man because they are athletes, because they're getting paid millions, because they're being worshipped as heroes, right? But just think if if 10% of them started sticking up and standing up for, you know, what the average black man experiences, imagine that, imagine the impact that would have on our culture and on our society. Because as Americans, right, even if you're a, a white man in, in Alabama, in the deep south, in Mississippi, you are worshiping these NFL teams. If you're a white man in, in Boston, right, you are worshiping the Celtics, which is a team that is predominantly black, right? These are your superheroes, whether you're a white man or that white man's son. You are worshiping these athletes. But what they don't remember, what they don't recognize, what they're sometimes purposely oblivious to and sometimes what they're just ignorant to is the experiences that these black men would face if they were not athletes. And so that's why I got to that's man. That's why I got to put Kaepernick on a pedestal. Right. That's why I got to, you know, give bro his dues. And that's why I got to talk shit about every other professional athlete that ain't doing shit. 
because if they did not have that athletic ability, they would be treated just like everybody else. Yet, because they're making their millions, because they're, they've had this experience that is separate from the average black man, they're being treated like royalty. However, if they did not have that athletic ability, they would be treated just like every other black man, and they would want themselves to speak up for the average black man, yet they're not. And that same pressure, the same pressure that um, Brother Zilaf is speaking about, is almost the same reason why they don't speak up, and particularly because of uh, finances and how much they are beholden to the same people that are affording them these opportunities. Um, expressing your blackness, expressing an opinion about racial and social justice issues, if that's not on the same wavelength as your corporate sponsors or the people that are signing your checks with your name on it, then they can essentially take that away from you and say, hey, we don't want you to talk about it. They, they essentially control your conversation. It's like, we don't want you to speak on that. Watch what we do to you, you know, and watch how quickly the conversation will change around you. You you may have been the hero now, but we can easily snap our fingers and turn you into pariah. We can always dig something up on you. We can always just flip it, you know. So that's that's been a big problem and a constant back and forth that I've seen with plenty of athletes um, that have already been ostracized for one thing or another, whether it's Mike Vick or other people that have been in issues, been arrested, have gone through kind of public shaming and, and all these things. And then to come back and see someone else that's, you know, standing up for these rights, who's essentially unafraid of dealing with the quote unquote financial consequences of speaking up around these social issues, they're going to come back and go, okay, you know, I, I lost what I had and who I will, who I was providing for. So now I'm going to switch my perspective and say, hey, hey, brother, I see what you're doing. I don't think that's the right way. You need to be quiet because if you keep speaking up, this is the, this is the pitfall. Look what happened to me. And we see that time and time again. There's plenty of athletes that have spoken uh, against Kaepernick for the same reason. Despite it being a silent protest, you know, despite uh, all these other things that as most people say when it comes to protest, you know, why are they so loud or why choose this platform or why do it this way? They usually question the medium for how you uh, how athletes choose to express themselves, you have, you have Kaepernick. Other people say, "Look, you know, I'm not worried about the money, or I'm not worried necessarily about these consequences you ostracize me because I want to be on the right side of history. I want to stick to my values or what's true to me. And if it's if I see things that are wrong and I have a platform that I can speak on, then I'm going to use that. And essentially, uh, the same way that uh, uh, Kaepernick has been essentially blackballed from the NFL." You've seen such a huge outcry and outpouring around him and support around him. There have been marches in New York, there's all over, all over the you know the country, uh, just in support of what he's doing because other people realize what he's standing for and what he's trying to push. Um, and of course, it's not everyone has their agenda and and so on and so forth. But with Kaepernick, they can at least understand that he's coming from a positive place, wanting to bring awareness and wanting to end the injustice. Really, it shouldn't. I can't really understand why it would be a problem. You have someone who's standing here trying to end injustice, and you're getting upset about the way he does it because it's disrupting your football game. When the reality is, the people that are paying for that don't even want to have this conversation to begin with, and they're in many cases are actively working in many ways to you know um, disenfranchise you know a lot of these players. So that comes across many times when it's like okay. We don't want you to hurt our brand by speaking on these social issues or, um, you know, coming out and being so loud or um, or quote unquote, unquote, too black or any of these things that don't fit the mainstream agenda. 
um, you're not sticking to the script. So that's going to keep coming across, you know, until you have more athletes that come up and, and say these things. And just to piggyback on what Spence was saying, I think a perfect example um, is an ir- irresponsible comments that Ray Lewis made. Um, and I think he's a perfect example because, as many people know, he was on trial for murder, came back, had a had a really good rest of his NFL career, excuse me, um, won a Super Bowl. Now he's all over people's uh, TV screens, getting to give his opinions on certain things. And as much as, you know what I'm saying, Black America has spoken out against what he said, it's none compared to, in his mind, for the damage that would have been done to his pocketbooks and his brand. Um, and also that also that's kind of a, a issue of um, Black America not mobilizing their buying power well. Um, and that's kind of what allows them to have so much um, control over our black men and what they can say and can't say and can't support and can't support. That's a perfect segue into the next uh, section of what I wanted to to bring in and come back next Friday to hear the conclusion of this Stay Woke podcast episode, Not Black, I'm OJ. Definitely come back and take a listen for that. We drop a new episode every Friday, so subscribe to, on Apple Podcast or our YouTube channel, The Sonic Breakdown, or follow us on SoundCloud. And you know our motto, live, listen to some great music, and above all, love more. We out.